The reading this morning is from the book of John, chapter 1, starting at verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God! When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite, in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, good morning, everyone. And um, let's begin by praying some of those words from the song we just sang again. Your word is living light upon our darkened eyes, guards us through temptations, makes the simple wise. Your word is food for famished ones, freedom for the slave, riches for the needy soul. Come, Lord, speak to us today. Amen. Well, it was literally one of the high points of my life to go trekking in the Atlas Mountains um, in Morocco. And as part of a group of 10 of us, we spent eight days making our way through the mountains before ascending the two highest peaks in North Africa, Mount Tukal and Mount Wanakrim. Um, it was a magnificent voyage of discovery with plenty of physical and, and mental ups and downs along the way. And on the day we summited Tukal, the, the highest peak, we had to start in the dark, leaving our tents at about 4 a.m. But following our guide, we hiked and scrambled and sometimes balanced and climbed with the rising sun before reaching the top mid-morning. And I must say, uh, to look out over that mountain range from the peak was breathtaking. Um, just to 
show you something. Here's my happy cry face um, at the moment we reach the top. Oh, I'll stop sharing. There we go. And um, here we go. Sorry. And our voyage through John's gospel is similarly like a mountain range. At various points along the way, we as readers encounter peaks when our vision is expanded. Last time in John chapter 1 verses 19 to 34, we had John the Baptist as our guide. We heard his instruction and his testimony, and we were led to consider Jesus as the one who is both anointed by the Spirit and the giver of the Spirit. Well, John is still around today in verse 35, along with two of his disciples, but not for much longer. In verse 36, he urges his disciples and us to look, to stop following him as our guide and to take in the view. On top of all that we've seen and heard about the identity of Jesus as the revelation of God, our passage today provides a dazzling vision of the person of Christ and of life with him. Together with the first disciples, we are invited to come and see, to come and see more of him that we might follow and delight in him as we continue our journey as his disciples. So following John's exhortation to look at Jesus, what do we see? Well, first notice um, all the actions of Jesus in the passage, each of which is significant. He sees, verse 38, turning around, Jesus saw them following. We'll come back to that in a moment. He asks, what do you want? More precisely, what do you seek? His first recorded words in the gospel, verse 38, is a question. I'll leave you to ponder why that might be. He invites, verse 39, come and you will see. He looks, verse 42, he looked at Simon. Perhaps before the coronavirus, we might have skipped over that detail. But one of the things that people are realizing under the current restrictions is just how important faces are. It's not easy to look into someone's eyes through a screen. I can tell you that right now. You can't see a smile behind a face mask. And when it says that Jesus looked at him, it means that he's turning his face towards him. It's a sign of sheer kindness. He looks, he calls, you're a Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas or Peter. He finds, finding Philip, verse 43 says, he instructs, follow me, he also says to Peter. He responds, verse 48. He promises, verse 50. He reveals, verse 51. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The point is, uh, Jacob's vision in Genesis 28, the one with the, the um, angels ascending and descending, is realized in Christ. Jacob saw a vision of something normally hidden, heaven opening. And the disciples now see the word become flesh. When you see Jesus, you see one who is from heaven. Now we could spend time meditating on each of those things. Um, sadly, we don't have the time for all of that. We're just going to think about one of them. <clears throat> that 
that, Je that Jesus sees. Verse 37. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 37 again. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following. This is the first recorded action of the word in the world. He turns towards the two men and sees them. Likewise, later, verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael approaching. Now, you might be thinking, isn't that just a description of what Jesus noticed in his line of sight, you know, through his retinas? Um, didn't he just happen to spot them as he was going about his, bu his business? And, and surely this is just John recording um, what Jesus saw for the sake of detail or accuracy or whatever. Well, actually, no, I don't think so. Uh, not just that, anyway. As we've already seen, John's gospel is full of descriptions of Jesus's actions and movements. And it's not a coincidence that those actions and movements are reminiscent of the language used to describe God's actions and movements towards his people throughout the whole of scripture. For instance, our opening psalm, Psalm 34, affirms this a bit later on uh, in, the, in the bit than the bit we read. It says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Likewise, Psalm 39 declares, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately, intricately woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Scripture is full of examples of God's all-seeing sight. And when this passage wonderfully conveys, or what this passage wonderfully conveys, is that Jesus sees, i.e. he knows, he observes, he perceives people before they really see him. Yes, John the Baptist and Philip and others, you know, bring Jesus to the attention of other people. But theologically speaking, they are secondary agents. They don't see first. This isn't a perfect analogy, but they're more like characters in, but not the author of a book. Both perform the action, but they're not the true initiator. Only God can claim that role. And I think that's why Nathaniel is so astonished in verse 47. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? And Jesus answers, I saw you while you're still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Before Nathaniel saw Jesus, Jesus saw Nathaniel. Not just in his physical situation, but also in the situation of his person, his heart. I'm a job to see it. Let me see if I can see the volume button. And you know, the same is true for us. Without God, we are blind. Blind to our sin, to our situation, to our self-righteousness, and of course, blind to him. And yet, as John Calvin wonderfully puts it, when we are not even thinking of Christ, we are observed by him. Though he may be concealed from our eyes, having ascended in his body, as we were reminded on Thursday on Ascension Day, we are in no way hidden from him, from his, his eyes. 
And that's because the eternal son, even as he is united to his human nature, continues to fill heaven and earth. And he's also present to us as the ascended Christ by the spirit given to us. And brothers and sisters, that is a huge comfort. In a time of self-isolation, when we're not able to see real faces of those we love, perhaps fearing the unknown and worried that no one can see what you're going through. Maybe you even feel like God has lost sight of you. He sees, he knows. Christ himself is present to you if you're his disciple. So as much as we talk about seeking God, and that is what we should do, by the way, it is always God who first sees and seeks us. Nevertheless, with the eyes of faith, what else can we see of Jesus in our passage? Well, how about all those names and, and titles that he has given? The first disciples may not have individually understood all that they spoke of Jesus, but collectively they show us this wonderful panoramic view of Christ. John the Baptist calls him the Lamb of God, verse 36, which we reflected on last week. John's disciples refer to him as rabbi in verse 37, a title of respect and honor, recognizing him to have spiritual authority. In verse 41, Andrew tells his brother that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the spirit-filled anointed one promised of old. Philip describes him as the one Moses and the prophets wrote about, verse 45. That's shorthand for the whole of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. Interestingly, Philip also adds some details about Jesus' family. He is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, which just serves to highlight his true humanity, doesn't it? Jesus is not God in a human shell. He is, as John's prologue showed us, the eternal word who is truly taken on flesh. The unmade maker of all things has taken on what was made. That said, Nathaniel also identifies Jesus as the son of God, verse 49. Not just Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, but Jesus, the divine son, who has eternally existed beyond time and space and matter. And just to say, it may be that Nathaniel didn't have all of that in mind. The title son of God might just indi indicate that Nathaniel recognized Jesus as the promised messianic king who was to come. After all, he, he calls him the king of Israel in the next line. But even if that's the case, Nathaniel is still right in what he unknowingly confessed. Jesus, the son of God and the father are one. Not one person, they are one in being and unity together with the Holy Spirit. And the gospel of John makes that abundantly clear as a whole. And we'll explore a bit more of that in a few weeks on Trinity Sunday. Finally, Jesus self-identifies as the Son of Man. And it's that title, that vista, we're going to spend a little bit more time on. The Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. It's a borrowed title from the Old Testament, from Daniel chapter 7. And there, the Son of Man is described as a human figure a representative of the people who ascends with the clouds of heaven to the throne of the ancient of days to be given authority and power to judge and rule over an everlasting kingdom 
but that leads to a tension. The Son of Man is human and yet rules at the side of the Ancient of Days and is glorified. Well, surely that tension is relieved for us in John's Gospel, where we see Jesus identifying himself as both pre-existent and the second Adam who is truly human. As the fulfillment of that vision, he is both the divine begotten son who has given life in himself and the truly human representative of God's people, the true Israel, who is given authority to judge. The son of man is therefore a title full of meaning, which helps us to see his person and mission even more clearly. And so what a vision. There's so much to see of Christ here in his words, his actions, and in these descriptions of him, which should leave us to ponder uh, and bring us to our response in our ongoing journey as Christians, as Christ's disciples. Come, Jesus says, and you will follow me. Finding Philip, he said to him, uh, you, follow me, sorry, come and you will see. Follow me, Jesus says. But what does following Christ involve? I used to want to be like Mike, um, not Mike Moyer or Mike Clark or Mike Reeves, Michael Jordan. Um, growing up in the States, basketball was my life and he was the ultimate icon. Be like Mike was a slogan from one of his Gatorade commercials. It's a sports drink. Um, and the point of the advert was everyone wants to be like Mike and you can be if you just drink his product, his sports drink. Yet anyone who's seen the recent uh, and brilliant 10-part Michael Jordan documentary that's been released on Netflix over the past few months will know that Michael Jordan was and is a complicated person to emulate and follow. He's one of the greatest professional sports athletes to, to ever live. But the way he treated his teammates and those around him was often ruthless. He'd do anything to win. And so anyone who got in his way was dismissed or discarded, or when it came to his opponents, destroyed. In contrast, look again at the portrait of following Jesus provided by the disciples. Why is it that when they heard about Jesus from John the Baptist, they took off with Jesus? The word follow is a term for real discipleship in John's gospel. They literally got up and abandoned their mentor, John the Baptist, for good. Well, it's not because they were flaky or superficial. What we're being shown is this. Even though they didn't have a clue where their journey with Jesus would lead them, they'd seen and heard enough to realize that Jesus wasn't entirely worth following. That's shown in their response to Jesus' question. What do you want, Jesus says? Where are you staying? That's not them avoiding the question or making polite conversation. Oh, you, oh, you're here on holiday. Where are you staying? No, no, no. Their question in return is their response to Jesus' question. It's them saying, we want to stay with you. And you know, that is the essence of the Christian life. <clears throat> It is following and remaining with and in Jesus Christ that we might come to know and worship and enjoy God forever. And the implications of this are both really important 
and beautiful. Because it means, as one writer put it, that Jesus Christ is not just the one who brings us hope. He is our hope. The gospel is not just about being rescued from the penalty uh, from the sin, uh, for a penalty due to us from our sins. It's not just about the mechanism of substitution for our salvation, though, of course, both those things are wonderfully true. It is about our uniting to him. As another writer puts it, he was given for us as a lamb in order that he might be given to us as a bridegroom. Isn't it striking that the very next passage in John chapter 2, the first of Jesus' miracles, involves Jesus playing the part of the true bridegroom at a wedding. The ultimate end of salvation is not deliverance from sin, but deliverance to him. I wonder, is that something that you've forgotten? If it is, even if we pray and talk about being Christ-centered and Christ-like, the danger is that we end up serving and working and praying in a way that Christ really isn't involved. And we'll end up miserable and frustrated because in reality, our Christian lives are self-orientated. If that at all resonates with you, as it certainly does for me, perhaps take some time this week to meditate on what we've seen and heard of Christ today. Pick one or two things from this passage and pray that God would show you Christ as we sang. Stay with him. Remain in him this coming week. And as he promised, uh, promises his disciples later on in John's gospel, he will remain in you. Finally, having heard and seen and remained with Christ, notice how the disciples bring others to him. Andrew brought Simon. It's the first thing he does. Philip found Nathaniel and invited him to come and see the same words that Jesus used. But you know, it all flows from their relationship with Christ. They wanted to bring others to him, not because it was a duty or anything like that, because they'd experienced the personal kindness of Christ in their own lives. He is the one who sees. He's the one who finds and calls and invites us to participate in his life. And so when we bring someone to Christ, all we're doing is sharing in the privilege and joy of being part of his mission in the world, of seeing eyes opened and people turning to follow and worship him. Well, hopefully we've scaled the peak of this passage to take in the view, to see more of Christ in his person and his glory. I pray that it might have led us to him. And um, so as we close, may we continually be drawn by Christ himself to follow and remain in him today and always. Amen.